This is Macro Horizons, episode 195, All Powell's Eve, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 31st. It never fails to leave us speechless how a Gaelic festival throughout the centuries has morphed into an excuse for children to dress as Disney characters, adults to don cracked hockey masks and carry rubber machetes, all the while indulging in the consumption of copious amounts of sugary treats. Happy Halloween! Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market, after selling off as far as 10-year yields at 434, managed to stage a reasonably impressive rally, bringing 10-year yields back below 4%. And as the process of consolidation continues to unfold, it is notable that the five-year auction of $43 billion on Wednesday stopped through 2.1 basis points in a strong indication that the terminal policy rate debate is not entirely one-sided. That said, the two-year auction of $42 billion tailed one1 basis points, and the seven-year auction of $35 billion also tailed slightly over one basis point. From the perspective of the economic data, GDP came largely as expected from a headline perspective, but a lot of that was a function of net exports, which has been heavily influenced by movements in the dollar as well as energy prices. Within the details, we see that final sales to domestic purchasers was effectively flat up five-tenths of a percent. Now, we consider this a key measure of the true underlying strength of the real economy, and at just half a percent, there are plenty of reasons to begin to be a bit more apprehensive about the near-to-medium-term outlook. In addition, the Case-Shiller print for August showed home prices down 1.3% on the month. As mortgage rates continue to increase, now above 7%, it does follow intuitively that the housing market will continue to slow. We've seen activity slow, and that was the first leg of the hit for the real estate market. Now, as prices begin to show clear indications of drifting lower, the question becomes how much downside is the Fed going to be comfortable absorbing before they begin to shift their messaging on the direction of monetary policy? We don't see much of a case to be made for a pivot between now and the end of the year, perhaps a soft pivot, which would simply reflect the fact that the Fed is decelerating the pace of rate hikes, but a true pivot to a more dovish stance seems highly unlikely. 
if and when such an event occurs, we actually expect that much of the origin will be through overall financial conditions and perhaps less directly linked to the U.S. economy and more a function of the global economy. This will put the Fed in a unique situation because they have spent so much of the post-pandemic period pushing back against having become the de facto central bank to the world and instead leaving U.S. monetary policy entirely a function of the U.S. economy. Now, this is a transition from what we had seen during the period between the financial crisis and the pandemic, where U.S. policymakers had increasingly incorporated the overall performance of global growth into their policy bias. The transition back to the U.S.-only narrative is understandable given how high inflation has been and how important price stability is for the U.S. economy in the long term. Also embedded in this observation is the idea that the Fed is knowingly, if not openly, trading real GDP growth for price stability. So while the cost of containing inflation at all costs might be increasing, we see little to suggest that the Fed's commitment in this regard is wavering. Well, after we got to 434.10s last week, this week had a decidedly more bullish tone in the Treasury market. Tens move backed well through 4%, and this is a level that's almost certainly going to remain thematic as the market continues to consolidate in preparation for next week's refunding announcement, Fed meeting, and payrolls report. Let us not forget that we did see the GDP numbers for the third quarter, and within the details of GDP, there was a somewhat troubling development insofar as Final sales to domestic purchasers increased just half a percent. Now, that's in contrast with the headline that printed at 2.6%. So the reality is that while ostensibly growth appears to have recovered somewhat after two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, there are some signs of ongoing underlying weakness in the real economy. That said... On Friday, we did see the September personal income and personal spending data, as well as the employment cost index, all of which continue to suggest that the consumer, despite the realities of higher real yields, remains in a relatively good position overall, at least for the time being. And it's that for the time being aspect that was also a big driver of the macro narrative this past week as the market continues to grapple with the question of when it will be that the Fed ultimately does decide to pivot from its current maximum hawkish stance to something more measured, either in terms of smaller rate hikes or a period on hold and then some acknowledgement that maybe policy doesn't need to be quite so restrictive. There was a Bank of Canada meeting and an ECB meeting this week as well that showed the BOC surprised the market on the dovish side by only raising rates 50 basis points in contrast to what was nearly priced at 7 75 basis points in the market. And similarly, the ECB delivered on the expected 75 basis point hike, but the rhetoric out of Frankfurt was a bit more measured in terms of what one can expect from here as it pertains to ongoing tightening from the ECB. The takeaway being that monetary policymakers globally are beginning to acknowledge the degree of the tightening that they've already delivered. And now we're transitioning to the period when we're nearing terminal rates in Canada, Europe, and the US. 
And the next big unknown is just how long Fed policy is going to stay on hold before we see the true pivot. And Ian, to your point on the strength of the consumer, given how strong the economy has been going into this tightening cycle, there's clearly some room for a give back both in terms of the health of the consumer and also the labor market before the Fed will feel compelled to bring rates off the restrictive extremes that we're quickly moving toward. One of the questions that we received last week that's worth exploring a bit was how much of an equity sell-off from the current level would Powell be willing to absorb without pivoting? And obviously, it's difficult to put a specific number on that, particularly given that the S&P 500 is currently down roughly 25% year-to-date. But the Fed's reaction function in this case is worth exploring. From the perspective of the FOMC, having lamented the inability to create true demand-side consumer inflation prior to the pandemic, the fact that we now see CPI continuing to outperform expectations does give the Fed the leeway to attempt to undo some of the asset price inflation that they were relying on prior to 2022. So, said differently, this means that the Fed is probably reasonably happy with the sell-off that has been realized thus far in the equity market because, if nothing else, it has been relatively orderly. Similarly, in the housing market, while home prices are unquestionably off the peaks, we're certainly not seeing the type of weakness that we saw during the housing crisis. So the FOMC is surely viewing this as something of a Goldilocks scenario, at least up until the point where the downside in the equity market begins to accelerate. And that's what we're worried about. We're worried not about another 10 or 15% lower in the S&P 500, outside of RPAs, of course, we're more concerned that that occurs in a very dramatic fashion. The Fed doesn't want to see limit down days, but the Fed would be content with a steady grind to lower equity valuations. And I would argue that same dynamic holds in terms of the real estate market, Ian. Unlike in 2008-2009, borrowing standards are much stricter and the financial system as a whole is much better capitalized than it was during the last financial crisis. Obviously, as we see mortgage rates reach their highest level in 20 years, there's going to be mortgage defaults and the housing market is going to continue to come off the highs. But thus far, it seems as if that's going to occur in such a way that doesn't pose a systemic risk to the markets or the global economy. But what it will do is operate as a drag on the wealth effect, a drag on consumer confidence, and ultimately, per the Fed's goal, take the upside edge off of the housing component of the inflation data. So while yes, it's certainly a negative for homeowners and it's a negative for the real estate contribution to overall growth, it is exactly what the Fed is pursuing given the overall contribution of housing and shelter costs to the core inflation data. And just briefly returning to the third quarter GDP print, we did see a 26% decline in fixed private investment on the residential side. And that follows intuitively versus mortgage rates above 7%. We recently had a question regarding the potential for the Fed to sell mortgages directly out of SOMA. Now, all else being equal, the Fed would like the balance sheet unwind to occur in the background without any disruptions or any material shifts to liquidity or the actual level of rates in the economy. That being said, 
the fact that the $35 billion cap on mortgage runoff has yet to be met given the slower paydowns because we're in a higher rate environment does beg the question, will the Fed consider selling mortgages in the first quarter? Assuming that core inflation continues to surprise on the upside and the Fed eventually gets us to their ideal version of terminal with a plan to hold rates there for 18 to 24 months, let's call it, then there's a case to be made for selling mortgages directly out of SOMA. We'll argue that it will simply be to fill the gap between the $35 billion and what has actually been running off. So let's call it somewhere between seven to ten billion a month, depending on the maturity profile. The question then becomes what happens to mortgage spreads at that moment? All else being equal, one would think that if the Fed were going to sell an asset class, that the price of that asset would decline. Our position is that while that might in theory be true, from a signaling perspective, the Fed has left the potential to sell mortgages very much on the table. And to a large extent, some of that, if not all, is currently reflected with mortgage rates at seven plus percent. On the potential announcement itself, we would expect that it would be a classic by the fact after having sold the rumor in the run-up. Nonetheless, the fallout for the real estate market from seven and a quarter, seven and a half percent mortgage rates at one point is going to be very tangible. And Ben, as you correctly point out, the de-wealthing effect has yet to really flow through to the economic data, even though personal consumption in the third quarter was just 1.4% on a three-month annualized basis. And on the issue of Treasury's role in the balance sheet, Ian, you and I are on the same page that outright Treasury sales remain unlikely, and especially given how the conversations around Treasury market liquidity have picked up recently, I would say through the entirety of next year, and frankly, probably until balance sheet normalization stops, Powell is not going to want to further erode Treasury market liquidity via actively selling Treasuries outright in the secondary market, and instead will continue to favor the passive runoff that we saw reach its maximum pace in September, and will persist for the foreseeable future. This brings us to Wednesday's other main event, in addition to the Fed meeting, which is the November refunding announcement. We're expecting that coupon auction sizes across the curve are going to remain unchanged, and what the market will be more sharply focused on is any more information on the issue of treasury buybacks, keeping with this idea of liquidity. In conversations on the desk and with clients, a potential buyback program would likely serve the Treasury Department's goal of improving liquidity in on-the-run bonds. However, such a program would actually run the risk of decreasing liquidity in off-the-runs, given that some of these issues are already heavily owned by the Fed or are purchased by the type of end user that is not necessarily an active participant in the secondary market. So unlike during QE, when the Fed's purchased bonds were then available for lending out of the SOMA portfolio, a buyback simply removes old treasuries from the market, meaning that they are not available to borrow. So as we think about dealers' ability to intermediate liquidity, if bonds are difficult to source because the Treasury Department has pulled a lot of them from the market, dealers are going to be very reluctant to make markets in bonds that they don't already hold. The end result being that while on-the-run liquidity may improve as trading is more concentrated in the new issue securities, off-the-run liquidity would actually run the risk of deteriorating further. 
given that discussions on the debt ceiling have already begun to make the rounds and the actual drop dead date itself will probably be an early 2023 story, I don't think anyone in the market is expecting any real clarity on the issue of buybacks on Wednesday morning, but any indication on how the Treasury Department is thinking about the topic will help set the stage for what might ultimately come to pass at either the February or May 2023 refunding announcements. And also on the topic of liquidity in the Treasury market, is the Fed dictated supplementary leverage ratio, or SLR? SLR relief is also something that has been discussed at great length by both the Fed and increasingly the Treasury Department. After all, by exempting Treasuries from leverage calculations, it would be a clear encouragement for liquidity on the part of the primary dealer community. Now, whether this actually comes to fruition or not is an open question, but most people, both on the regulatory and on the market participant side, at this point can see the merit in doing so. And really the unknown on the potential reintroduction of Treasury's exemption from SLR calculations is going to be one of timing. The Fed almost certainly doesn't want to be viewed as rushing into this decision. However, given the proximity to year-end and what's already started to be rumblings about funding market dislocations and the potential upward pressure on overnight rates around the calendar turn, the greatest benefit from this policy tweak would probably be realized around the December 31st date. And so in that regard, as we move past the November Fed meeting and policymakers can once again offer their opinions on the matter, We'll certainly be on the lookout for comments from Governor Bowman or Barr on the topic and any potential timeline that the market could expect some relief in this regard, which would help increase bank capacity to own treasuries and introduce some more demand into the market. So in short, at this moment, the regulators are in the driver's seat. Or maybe the back seat. Hmm, probably the hot seat. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of fundamental inputs from which to derive trading direction. First, Monday is not only Halloween, but it's also month-end and year-end for Canadian banks. So from a baseline, we would expect to see the indexing community scale into Treasuries, if for nothing else than to keep pace with the extension, which is 0.07 years for October. We'll also get the ISM series, Manufacturing on Tuesday and Services on Thursday. Within the Manufacturing release, we'll be watching for the spread between new orders and inventories. Note that this has printed negative for the last six months. Now, essentially, this is a question to manufacturers about the level of inventories that they're carrying versus the amount of new orders that are coming in. Whenever inventories surpass new orders, it tends to be the beginning of a material slowdown in the U.S. economy. So without question, this will be on our radar. Tuesday also offers the September jolts numbers, which have been in the past a driver of the collective sense that there remains strong demand for U.S. workers, even if there is a mismatch in skills. Wednesday's FOMC rate decision is expected to deliver another supersized 75 basis point rate hike. However, unlike the last move, we're expecting this rate hike to be accompanied with more dovish rhetoric. Now, not dovish in an outright sense, but incrementally less hawkish as the Fed begins to set the stage for a deceleration to a 50 basis point hike in December. 
Now we continue to see the final hike as 25 basis points in February with an acknowledgement that in December we will have the updated SEP, including the beloved dot plot, for greater clarity as to where policymakers see terminal for this cycle. Non-farm payrolls is also on Friday, and the current consensus is for a positive print of 200,000 jobs with the unemployment rate at 3.6%. The average hourly earnings is expected to increase three-tenths of a percent, which will once again keep investors focused on the potential for a wage-driven inflationary spiral. We continue to see the prospects for this coming to fruition as relatively low, especially in light of the Fed's commitment to the 2% inflation target. There's a strong argument to be made that the inflation target should be increased to 25 or 3%, but from a credibility perspective, it's very difficult to envision that the Fed would abandon the 2% target until they have managed to bring inflation back into that range this cycle. At some point, the framework might be revisited, but for the sake of credibility, they need to hold the line this cycle. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And for those at home interested in our Halloween costume plans, I'll be going as a basis point, and Ben will be an inflation inferno. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.